Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you know us inside out. You know exactly what we need. And you have already provided it for us in the Lord Jesus. So we pray, Father, from that safe place, we would submit to you today, asking you to work, to make us more like Christ. For we pray in his name. Amen. Are you more prone to self-satisfied smugness or anguished soul-searching? Is it more likely that your life is marked by hypocrisy or hungering? Is the dominant note of your days one of self-justification or longing? It's an important question because it will, to a large extent, shape our experience as followers of Jesus from day to day, week to week, and month to month. And most of us do tend to default either to patting ourselves on the back or beating ourselves up, even though neither of those options are particularly gospel-shaped. In fact, each of those options will ultimately make us miserable. I should know, I think I'm something of an expert on both. In my early teens, prompted by such rich theological tomes as The Cross Cross and the Switchblade and Run, Baby, Run, Tales of converted gang members in New York City in the 1960s and 70s. I was very much into longing for a deeper experience of God. I hankered for intense spiritual highs. I desperately wanted to speak in tongues. Then I left such things behind. And wholeheartedly embraced the smug, hypocritical, theologically informed Phariseeism, which was basically a national sport in the part of the world that I grew up. Since then, I confess I have generally needed God to melt the ice rather than douse the flames. I've never been tempted to go and do something radical like live in a pole in the middle of the desert, like the desert fathers to get closer to God. (laughs) Taking a vow of silence to pursue intimacy with God has never been attractive, nor has continuing to pursue the ability to speak in angelic languages. Rather, life for me has been a daily fight against thinking more highly of myself than I ought and looking down my nose at others. So what's it like for you? Hypocrisy or hankering? Smugness or self-flagellation? Well, this morning, Hosea 8 zooms in on one of those tendencies. One of the enduring and alluring temptations of being part of the covenant people of God, whether before Jesus' death and resurrection or after, has always been sliding easily into the comfortable old pair of slippers that is hypocrisy. Happily settling for talking a good game rather than actually living up to our own words. Congratulating ourselves on being experts in the theory, even though we're strangers to the reality. Saying the gospel is all important, but not really bothering about living a gospel-shaped life. And, of course, the great thing about hypocrisy is that it comes with its own stealth technology. Even when our hypocrisy is blatantly obvious to other people, it's generally invisible to us, allowing us to smugly continue on our merry way, undisturbed by our lack of authenticity. And for most of us in this room, this is a real and present danger. Yes, there may be a few of us 
who are in danger of so hungering after spiritual experiences that we spiral off into mysticism. Now, if that's you, just hang on, I'll say a word to you in a moment. But for most of us, when we start to talk about hypocrisy, we're on home turf. If we have any self-awareness at all, we'll know it is a perennial danger for those of us who are part of the Premier Theological College in Spring Hill. (laughs) This particular virus breeds in the water here. An emphasis on training, on biblical theology, on strategy, even on rigorous, systematic, expository preaching can tend to produce superiority rather than soul-searching. I'd actually be surprised if too many of us are in danger of spending this week languishing in a dark pit of self-preoccupation because we're relentlessly pursuing a deeper experience of God and are berating ourselves because we come up short. We're actually far more likely to act like we've made it spiritually, which is what makes it so very important that we take Hosea 8 seriously. For it turns out that 21st century gospel-centered reformed evangelicals and 8th century Israelites have something very important in common. When it comes to being smug, we really are world class. Hosea 8 is about facing and rooting out hypocrisy, which I have to admit is more easily said than done. That's why I'm going to start today by giving you the conclusion See, this message is so important, and generally speaking, we are so resistant to it that I'm going to tell you up front what the punchline of the talk is to give you the maximum time to sit with it. The point of Hosea 8 is summed up in one of the most powerful stories that Jesus ever told in Luke 18. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. A sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. There you go. There's the punchline. Hypocrisy kills. <laughs> so, smug people, we need to humble ourselves, repent, and run to Jesus. Searing, but simple. And if, like me, you're prone to self-congratulation and hypocrisy, get ready to be seared for the good of your souls. Now, of course, there are some of us who have deeply tender consciences. And even now, as we sit here, are starting to question the depth of our commitment and the reality of our relationship with God. Is that you? If it is, please hear this. This chapter is strong medicine. It is so strong because it's aimed primarily at those who've made an art form of ignoring the gentle promptings of God. That's why it comes with all the subtlety of a spiritual sledgehammer. 
you may not need such blunt force trauma to bring you back to God. If you already feel the acute need to cry out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, then you've already grasped the heart of the matter. You probably don't need to stagger more under each successive confrontational movement of this chapter. So if you're a tender soul, hear that. But for the rest of us, well, you'd be the judge. Hosea 8 actually gives us five marks of genuine hypocrisy, which we would do very well to take seriously. You'll see the first one in the first three verses. It's saying we know God while not living his beautiful life. Set the trumpet to your lips. Actually, it says stick the trumpet in your mouth. You know, this is not about your embouchure. This is just stick it right in and blow there. One like a vulture is over the house of Yahweh because they've transgressed my covenant, rebelled against my law. To me, they cry, my God, we, hey, Israel, it's us. We know you. But Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. Straight out of the gate, Hosea blasts the people with the simple fact that their claim to know God is fictitious. They do not have a clue. Usually, the shofar, the ceremonial horn, was blown to announce that God was on the move, whether at Sinai or Jericho or on the Day of Atonement in the temple. Here it announces that God is coming in judgment. Despite their claims to know God, the curses of the covenant are about to be poured out on the northern kingdom of Israel in the 8th century. Now, remember, the way it worked for God's people in the Old Testament was relatively simple. God says, you are my global visual aid. When you live out the beautiful life of the Torah, I will heap physical blessings on you as a sign to the world. When you don't, I will bring the curses of the covenant on you so the world can see that this is not my way. It's not the way to go. Here's how Moses describes one of these in Deuteronomy 28, 49. Yahweh will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, same bird, vulture, eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old, show mercy to the young, it'll eat the offspring of your cattle, the fruit of your ground until you're destroyed, won't leave you grain, while oil, the increase of your herds, the young of your flock, until they've caused you to perish." As the Assyrians literally knock on their door, probably carrying shields marked with birds of prey, this is what's happening. God had said, choose me, choose the good, but they rejected it. Now they're paying the price. In Deuteronomy 30, Moses had actually said, see, I have set before you today life and the good, death and evil. They've chosen death and evil. They said, we know God, but they didn't do what he asked them. Rather than listening to him, they chose death and evil. Calvin said, under this cover, saying we know God, they impiously and profanely abandoned themselves to every kind of evil. Yet they thought they were on the best of terms with God himself. They were tragically deluded. Saying we know God when we don't live the life is stupid. 
Now, I confess that part of me wants to say at this point that this was basically an Israel issue, but now that we've been united to Christ and received the Spirit, we don't really need to worry about this. But there's one thing that prevents me from doing that. It's the fact that it's not true. Because the New Testament says exactly the same thing. Hear these deeply searching words from James 1. This is verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect Torah, the Torah of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will, he, he will be blessed in his doing. I do wonder if we should get those verses inscribed on the glass panels, the front door downstairs. For here at college, when we spend so much time and energy studying the words of God, isn't the great danger that we can talk at length about God without actually living with and for him? Saying, oh yes, we know God, when in reality our relationship with him is withering on the vine. We of all people are in danger of having a form of godliness, but one that is stripped of all vitality and power. The first mark of hypocrisy is saying we know God while not living the beautiful life. The second is claiming God is in charge, but doing our own thing. Eight verse four. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus famously warned, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Here, Hosea's version of the same confronting statement. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. Now, the background to this is almost certainly the frenzied king swapping of Israel in the 8th century. But to be honest, from the moment they had broken with David's dynasty in the 10th century and gone their own way, independence had been the order of the day. Shouldn't really come as a shock. Independence comes naturally to most of us most of the time. And I suspect that even for those of us who've been following Jesus for years, we need to constantly recover the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. Becoming a Christian starts with a surrender, with an admission that God is God and we are not, with bowing the knee to Jesus our King. The danger is that as time goes on, we gradually try to elevate ourselves to his level and submission becomes less of a priority. After all, we, we have come such a long way. We've grown so much. We have character and convictions and competencies. We've been trained as gospel-driven leaders. Bring on that challenging world. Of course, God is theoretically in charge, but basically we run things for him. We should just get on with it, shouldn't we? No. Israel claimed to belong to God. They claimed to be doing things in God's name, but in reality, they were doing exactly as they pleased. They were doing what they wanted to do in the way they wanted to do it. There was no sign anywhere in their national life that they were submitting to God. And in the case of Israel, that was a telltale sign of a deep-rooted and toxic spiritual hypocrisy. 
Now, we do have to be a little bit careful here. God doesn't call us to a miserable, guilt-soaked, duty-driven, elder brother-like relationship with him. There is more to our relationship with God than just submission. But there is not less. And that means it's worth regularly asking ourselves the question, is there anything I do in serving Jesus which I really don't want to do, but I do simply because he is Lord and tells me to do it? That's a real question. Do you think about that? Is there anything that I do just because Jesus tells me to do it? If we can't think of anything, I reckon it's a pretty reliable indicator that we have slipped into just doing our own thing, whatever it looks like to others on the outside. Now, let me press into this a bit further. Over the years, as students pass through college, We've seen this raise its head often enough. There are some telltale signs for all of us, which, although they can have a variety of root causes, often betray this particular expression of spiritual hypocrisy. When we say that God is our king, but in reality are trying to organize our lives ourselves, it often shows in having little interest in praying with others. For most of us, most of the time, prayer is hard work. My experience is that prayer tends not to be fun. Why would we pray? We only pray for two reasons. We only pray because God tells us to. And we'll only pray when we believe that God is actually in charge and he is the one doing the real work. If we're completely disinterested in praying with others it's more than likely ultimately a denial of the lordship of Christ. When we say that God is our king, but we are in reality trying to run things ourselves, it also shows in a reluctance to listen to those in authority. I don't know if you've noticed, but God has set up his church in a way which is actually profoundly hierarchical. It doesn't matter whether you're a Baptist or a Presbyterian or an Independent or an Anglican or anything else. We're all called to submit to our leaders as they submit to God. It's just how it is. If that's missing in our attitudes, then something has gone wrong. When we say that God is our king, but in reality are just trying to organize our lives for ourselves, it often shows in an unwillingness to volunteer for unpleasant or thankless or mundane jobs. At the risk of stating the obvious, we belong to the foot-washing servant king who didn't come to serve but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for us. If he's in charge, we'll do the same. And often when we say that God is our king but are actually trying to run things ourselves, it will show in a disinterest in the other people around us. If God is actually in charge, then his people become a priority. If we're doing our own thing, then our agenda, our comfort, our priorities, our responsibilities will dominate. We'll just do what we want. Once again, it's James who puts his finger on how this tendency to pay lip service to the rule of God plays out in church. 
He says this in chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James says you don't have because you don't ask. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship is the world with the world is enmity with God? Then there's a third mark of hypocrisy in verses 5 and 6. It's appearing to be pious while worshipping other gods. Now, from the very beginning, the people of Israel had been masters at maintaining the appearance of worshipping God while spiraling off into much more manageable, less demanding versions of the real thing. It all started with Aaron on Mount Sinai. This is Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they gathered themselves together to Aaron and said, Get up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what became of him. So Aaron said, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, of your wives, your sons, and your daughters. Bring them to me. They brought them. He fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. And Aaron said, tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. And they rose up early the next day, offered burnt offerings, brought peace offerings, and they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, which was not board games, it was sexual indulgence. Now notice the particular brand of idolatry that they specialized in from the beginning. Not explicitly worshipping other gods, although they did that at points too, but more substituting a God who could be controlled for the real thing. Usually a small metal bull. A golden bovine Yahweh was much less intimidating than the one who was speaking to Moses on the top of the mountain. Now that principle was picked up and developed by Jeroboam at the time of the foundation of the northern kingdom. He didn't want anyone having to go across the newly created border between Israel and Judah to worship at the Jerusalem temple. So he set up twin shrines, Dan in the north, Bethel in the south, each with their very own little Yahweh calf. And for the entire history of the northern kingdom, that set their to the tone of their worship. Do we worship Yahweh? Absolutely. Can't you see him sitting on his little plinth over there? God's verdict on this travesty runs from verse 5. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? Look, it's from Israel. A craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. The problem is that these calves, or, well, calf, it's likely that the one in Dan has already been smashed by the Assyrians at this stage. These calves have a stamp on the bottom made in Israel. They are not God. Now, the last time I checked, worship the little bull kind of idolatry wasn't really a big issue in the QTC student body. The faculty? Not so sure. Wes does have a few relics in his office, you know. But, but not any students, you know. However, pretending that we're worshipping the living God wholeheartedly while actually putting all kinds of limits on what he might ask of us, that's a bit more prevalent. 
What does that look like? Might be a case of saying, of course I'll serve God, but only in the greater Brisbane area. Might be a case of saying, of course I'll serve God, but only in exactly the right kind of role for me. Might be a case of saying, of course I'll serve God, but only on every other weekend. Living within our comfort zone is really a form of idolatry. Setting limits to our commitment is a form of idolatry. Because we're talking about the living God here. Not some golden bull. It's actually the point the Apostle John makes right at the end of his first letter. He says, we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we might know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, he says, keep yourselves from idols. See, once we've seen who Jesus is and what he's done, once we've realized that he is the true God and eternal life, it changes everything. We can have no other gods before him. All boundaries, all limits, all exceptions are blown away. We've got to live for him alone. To take his name, to say we are Christians, is to make an utterly all-encompassing, wholehearted, all-of-life commitment. And it demands that we keep ourselves from idols, from limiting him. For pretending to be pious while we're worshipping anything other than Jesus is the worst kind of sham. The third mark of hypocrisy. And the fourth, well, verses 7 to 10, it's insisting that we trust God while we're relying on ourselves. The political history of the Northern Kingdom was a long and consistent story of backing the wrong horse. Even though they were God's people and regularly asserted that to anyone who would listen They consistently back themselves to find a way out of any challenging situation they find themselves in. And it always ended badly. 8 verse 7. They sow to the wind, they reap the whirlwind. It's probably a proverb. It's not complicated. Play with fire and you'll get burned. But the specific issue behind this is actually that they're completely self-reliant. Even though they kept saying, in God we trust. The problem with self-reliance, of course, is that sooner or later it will be shown up as a really dreadful mistake. That's the thrust of the harvest picture in verse 7. When you see that the standing grain has no heads, it's a clear signal that it shall yield no flower. The tall grain stalks of grain are deceptive. And then Hosea adds, and by the way, even if they were to produce flour, strangers would eat it. See, rather than trusting God, Israel has been cutting all kinds of dodgy deals with the surrounding nations and is about to pay. Not only will they eat Israel's harvest, they'll actually devour the nation itself. Verse 8, Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as an unwanted vessel. Back in Exodus 19, when the nation was born, God said, you shall be my treasured possession among all people. Now they've rejected God and been tossed aside. How did it happen? They've trusted themselves. Verse 9, they've gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Just a stupid lost animal. 
Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up, and the king and princes shall rive because of the tribute, the bribe they paid to the approaching superpower. Really, how could God's people think it's a good idea to live by their own wits rather than living for God? How could they think trusting in Assyria was going to turn out well? It made no sense. But they did it. And the problem is we do it too. We'd all say that God is the God of all wisdom, that he knows best, that he is the one who can be trusted. And then we act like we've got it all covered. We live by sight, by our wits, rather than by faith in the one and only God. But picking up these words of Hosea, the Apostle Paul warns us about the cost of this kind of hypocrisy. Galatians 6, 7. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, he will also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. To sow to the Spirit here is actually just to look to God to produce life and growth. To sow to the flesh is to do things our way. And doing things our way is a subtle but dangerous expression of hypocrisy. You know, there is a sense that simply by coming to college, we've made a very public declaration of the fact that we trust God. It's already out there. The question that Hosea 8 raises is, are we actually trusting in ourselves to secure our own future, to negotiate our own present? Be warned. God says that can only end badly. So saying we know God while not living his beautiful life is the first mark of hypocrisy. Claiming God's in charge but doing our own thing. It's the second. Appearing to be pious while actually worshipping other gods. It's the third. And insisting we trust God while relying on ourselves is the fourth. There's just one more. Verses 11 to 14. It's being very religious while pursuing every opportunity to sin. At the root of hypocrisy is the gap between what we say and what we do. Between an orthodox confession on the one hand and a quiet determination to keep on sinning on the other. Here's what it looked like for Hosea. Verse 11. Because Ephraim Ephraim has multiplied altars for sin offerings, they have become to him altars for sinning. Back in Deuteronomy 12, God made it clear that Israel was to have one altar and he would decide where it went. They've left that far behind. And even though they make far more offerings than before, because they multiplied these altars, those offerings backfire. They're all sinful expressions of independence. Kind of looks religious, but it's all about them. They've walked away from God's prescription for life for them, and there's no going back. Isn't verse 12 astonishing? Were I to write for Ephraim my laws by the ten thousands, they would just regard it as a strange thing. I could give them Deuteronomy volumes two to six. Wouldn't make any difference. More revelation is not going to help because they won't listen. Verse 13 is pretty blunt. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but Yahweh does not accept them. Their religious activity achieves nothing. 
and it can't mask their sin. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins and they'll go back to Egypt. The verdict in verse 14 is desperately sad. Israel has forgotten his maker, built palaces for their wayward kings. Judah, well, they're not idolatrous, but they just multiply fortified cities. Their trust in themselves is still on full display. So I will send a fire upon them and it will devour their strongholds. The full force of the might of Assyria is about to consume them. And God tells them that actually he stands behind it all. So he is not coming to help. You don't need me to tell you that it's very possible to put on a good show, to be very committed to religious activity, and yet to be living in a way which contradicts the gospel. It's not just an Old Testament thing. Even in the church of the Lord Jesus, this kind of hypocrisy persists. James again puts it like this, James 1.26. If anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, Religion is worthless. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their afflictions and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Over the years, there have been a string of sad occasions when it's become apparent that a member of our community here in college was living a lie and a fairly spectacular sinful lie where religious activity Religious commitment was actually masking a deep brokenness and darkness. And it is possible that right now there are some of us who really have been trapped by sin and guilt, who feel locked into this kind of hypocrisy, who are living with the shame of unconfessed sin and just trying to cover it up by studying and serving. If that is you, then come into the light. Look to Jesus to break the power of cancelled sin in your life. Confess the reality, find grace and reassurance and restoration in him. You know, there are plenty of us on staff here who would love to talk to you and pray with you. Wes and Katie were right. Hosea 8 is a pretty bleak chapter. And its relentlessness for us is compounded by the fact that the hypocrisy which it condemns and exposes isn't just an Old Testament thing, but is an enduring problem for people like us. Because the reality is that, yes, we've been brought to new life in Christ. Yes, the Spirit lives in us. Yes, we've been forgiven and freed from the grip of sin, but its presence still endures. I think this chapter forces us to confront one of the most important and I think most neglected doctrines for anyone who wants to live a Christ-honoring life. The doctrine of indwelling or remaining sin. John Newton once wrote, My heart is like a country that's half subdued, where everything is in an unsettled state and mutinies and insurrections are daily happening. This is our reality. I don't think anyone has ever written so perceptively or piercingly in this subject than John Owen, the English Puritan. And if you want to pursue this more, Owen is the place to go. He spells it out for us like this. Our soul is the home of indwelling sin. There it dwells. It is no wanderer. Wherever you are, whatever you're about, this law of sin is always in you in the best 
and in the worst. We little consider what a dangerous companion is always at home with us. When we're in company, when we're alone, by night, by day, sin is with us. There's a living coal continually in our houses, which if we don't take care of it, will burst into flame. Owen says that's why our life is marked by what he calls unexpected surprisals, which arise unbidden in our hearts and minds. We need to remember sin can attack us at any given moment surprisingly in all kinds of ways. Do you ever find that you're actually aiming to repent of a particular sin, to break the pattern, only to be carried away with a fresh delight in it? I don't know if you've noticed, it's much harder to go from, uh, to go from sin to repentance than it is to go from repentance back into sin. This is reality. In the section of his works where he's writing about this, John Owen actually points out that in this, we actually face a different struggle to the Lord Jesus himself. Because even though he was tempted in every way like we are, yet was without sin, Jesus only had to deal with temptation from the outside. We have to deal with what comes from our own hearts which is all too willing to give in most of the time. See, this is why we get no holidays in the Christian life. No days off. We don't even get to negotiate a minute where sin will leave us alone and we can chillax. This is what we're up against. This is why the battle against hypocrisy is a lifelong one. We need to take this seriously. Mark Jones, in a really helpful little book called Knowing Sin, writes this. Ignorance of the nature of sin within us leads to a failure to prepare for the battle that rages in our souls. A violent enemy resides as an unwanted guest within every Christian. This foe may be crushed at first by the spirit, but it will return again and again. Do not be unaware of the resurrection power of sin. We are dealing not only with a powerful enemy, but a cunning one, which is cleverer than we first thought. That's why Hosea 8 resonates with us. That's why it's hard to live the beautiful life and easy to do our own thing. That's why it's really easy to create little gods to worship. That's why it's easy to trust ourselves rather than God against all the evidence. It's why it comes naturally to us to disguise our inner struggle with claims to know God, saying we trust and worship and serve him. So what are we to do? Well, John Owen puts it like this. The choicest believers who are assuredly free of the condemning power of sin, and praise God we are, ought yet to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work, he says? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. 
We're to look to God himself for the strength that to come to him in repentance and faith, taking hold of the gospel every day, putting off sin and the old self and clothing ourselves with Christ. We are to run to him. Let's give the final word to the Apostle James. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will exalt you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that right now, by the power of your spirit, you would give us the grace we need to run to you again in repentance and faith. That we might know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But that we might know too that we need to constantly fight the sin that remains within us while we have breath. Knowing that in your mercy, one day the struggle will be over. For we will be like you. Until that day, help us to fight in the strength that you supply for your glory and our eternal good. For we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This recording of QTC Chapel is made possible with the support of our generous financial partners. If you have found this podcast helpful and encouraging, would you please consider partnering with us? For details on how to do this, visit www.qtc.edu.au and click on Support QTC.